Good morning. Welcome. We're here this morning to hear argument in the case of Performance Services, Inc. Appellant versus Randolph Eastern School Corporation Appellee. Counsel for Performance Services will argue first. It's a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Representing the appellants today, we have William Kelly. Good morning, Mr. Kelly. And Sean Devani, welcome. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Devani? Devani. Mr. Devani, representing um, the appellees. At council table, we have Joseph Rampala. Good morning, Mr. Rampala. And Robert Rund. Good morning, Mr. Rund. Councils, we have been conducting oral arguments. You'll have approximately two minutes to uh, make your argument before we um, <coughs> start asking questions. So, Council, you ready to proceed? May it please the court, I have reserved five minutes of time for rebuttal. This lawsuit involves a contract dispute where the plain and unambiguous terms of the contract represent a meeting of the minds and a bargain for exchange. Longstanding principles of contract law, reinforced repeatedly by this court, dictate that such a contract must be interpreted using the four corners rule without consideration of parole evidence. Based on the plain terms of the contract, Performance Services, Inc agreed to acquire and construct a wind turbine and then operate, maintain, insure, and repair the turbine once it was put into service. Under the contract, PSI granted Randolph Eastern access to the wind turbine and its data for the school corporation's own use in educational and vocational training programs related to renewable energy programs. In exchange, the only financial commitment made by Randolph Eastern under the contract was to pay PSI a biannual access fee for the right to access the turbine and its related data for its educational programs. The core dispute arises from the fact that PSI performed under the contract and Randolph Eastern did not. Resolution of this contract dispute does not require consideration of any of the parole evidence submitted by the school corporation in its effort to void the contract. This includes the advisory opinion evidence from the State Board of Accounts as to whether it believes the contract constituted either an unauthorized investment or a lease. The access fee arrangement outlined in the contract cannot be construed to be an investment. There was no deposit of money by the school. Randolph Eastern's financial obligations were limited to payment of the access fees. At no time has the school corporation ever owned the wind turbine. Therefore, Indiana's Public Investment Act does not apply here. The contract arrangement amounted to a license and not a lease. But because it's not a lease, neither the Public Lease Act nor the Public Works Act apply to the contract. PSI requests that the contract be enforced as written, and it seeks a remand for a trial on damages. Chief, what did, I have a preliminary question. The, um, the case coming up, up to us, it was a final judgment on all issues. What is your understanding of what's left of your client's equitable claims? Your Honor, that, that is an excellent question, and it wasn't briefed fully at the Court of Appeals level, but at the trial court level, there was a motion for summary judgment on all counts filed by RESC, Randolph Eastern, we filed a partial summary judgment and did not seek summary judgment on the equitable count. It was expressly reserved. The final judgment was entered as a final and appealable order by the trial court. On all claims. On all claims. Including the equitable claims. So they're not still pending in the trial court. <laughs> it does not appear to be the way the order is written because the way the trial court 
entered it was it's a final appealable order on all claims. Now, the only argument at the trial court level that was raised by Randolph Eastern on the equitable claim was its statute of limitations. And you've not raised on appeal that those are still open claims. We have not raised that on appeal, Your Honor. That is correct. So I'm, I'm sorry. So what's the answer to the Chief's question? Does the claim remain or does it not? It, it does not appear to remain the way that the trial and, court... And, and you've not challenged that, correct? So you're satisfied that that judgment against you is, is, is stands pat? Correct, Your Honor. I believe that that... that so this is all case. about the breach of contract claim? The breach of contract and the account well, stated counts. Okay. Correct, Your Honor. And then the declaratory judgment on the Randolph Eastern side. Correct, Your Honor. Your Honor, in enforcing the contract, we advocated for a four corners reading because of the bargain for exchange between the parties. The challenge that comes from Randolph Eastern comes primarily in the form of a State Board of Accounts opinion as to whether this is an illegal investment or whether it was an unauthorized lease that followed or did and there's not there's no dispute that the school corporation cannot invest in a wind turbine, correct? I do not believe that that is accurate. Okay. Uh, I, I think what you have to do is take the, the, the phraseology that you just used and break it down. The word invest is not defined by the public, le or the, excuse me, the Public Investment Act, and it's not otherwise defined in the home rule statutes that are at issue. The State Board of Accounts has taken the position that a school corporation could own a wind turbine if it powered its own facilities, but it could not necessarily own a wind turbine if the power was being sold under a power purchase agreement to a third party, for example. Counsel, you want us to apply the Howey test for investment, is that right? That is the test that we advocated only because it was the test from the Supreme Court that has been adopted at least twice by the Indiana Court of Appeals in the context of securities law, uh, but for the investment contract definition. So which element of the Howey test do you think is not satisfied here to demonstrate an investment? Primarily, the, first, the very first step of the Howey test is invest, the investment of money, and we do not believe that that has been satisfied. If you look at the contract itself, the, the biannual access fee is tied specifically to an obligation by PSI to provide physical access during certain times of day and to provide data, which was done in the form of an online dashboard through the internet that was made accessible to the school corporation. Help me with this. When you talk about it says it's commit to invest, not just invest. So your argument is because they never made a payment. No money had changed hands, that it was not an investment. But you also have a cross-complaint for specific performance in the form of those unpaid payments. Isn't, isn't that an inconsistent Your Honor, I don't think it's inconsistent, only because the payments themselves are tied to the access. So the bargain for exchange for the access fee was the right to have access to the physical turbine and the data itself for vocational training programs that the school wanted to have in its alternate energy education offering. But doesn't that, if you sue for specific performance, saying, hey, they committed to invest this money and they didn't pay that, why is that not enough given the, the outcome? It wasn't just for allowing the students in during the day. There is a hope of return later correct? In the contract, not just under the one section, but in the other section, if you pay the 77000 you get this, and then later, and under other sections, you get this, this, and this, with a hope of return. So even, and I, I agree with you on the parole evidence. We're looking at the four corners of the contract, so what they thought it was and talked about at the school board is different from what's in the contract. But you can't just look at the clause of the 77000 for allowing the students in. There was a hope of return. How do you get around the commitment to invest in the of and the revenue that was hopefully generated from it. Because the way the contract is structured, the biannual access fee, the value, the 77000 twice a year, was set to be in exchange for the access provided by PSI. It was not a deposit of money. It was not a payment of money with a hope for 
a return on that money back to them. The biannual access fee was what it was in exchange for the access. Do you expect that the, that the school would have agreed to that if they didn't get the return? If the contract was just they would pay $150,000 a year just for the access to the data and that's it. Do you think there still would have been a deal here? I can't speculate as to what the school would or would not have done. Certainly they were interested in promoting the vocational side of having access to the wind turbine and its data to introduce those offerings. Their website indicates that they had alternate energy programs that they were trying to incorporate in their educational program. So I don't know the answer as to whether the deal would have been structured the same or differently, but I think there may have still been a path forward for the school to want that access for their educational opportunities for their students. What do we uh, make? Go ahead. Go ahead, Council. No, go ahead. What do we make of the fact that, the, that the, the price of the deal is tied to the financing for the construction, not the value of the data? I mean, what I struggle with is what, what if the school had agreed to pay a million dollars, five million dollars, ten million dollars? I mean, don't we have to, isn't some part of this when we're analyzing whether it's an investment, whether or not the contract price was tied at all to what they were actually receiving? I agree with that. I'd say there's no evidence before this court that the money was not reasonably valued to the value of the access that they could have gotten uh, in terms of what they would have used that for. So the, the evidence does indicate, as Randolph Eastern suggests, that the number was tied to the debt service number, but that doesn't mean that that automatically renders that number void or renders that number unreasonable in terms of the level of access that was going to be provided for that service. That's a damages issue in my mind in terms of whether the value that was agreed upon and, of, and the value the services provided by PSI uh, met the expectations of the parties, and that's why we've asked this to be remanded for a trial on damages, where certainly that issue can be raised, where the school could raise a defense to say, we agreed for that level of value of access, we don't believe we got it, therefore we don't owe you the full fees, but that's, that's where a fully vetted record on a damages trial, I believe, would be appropriate. Council, there's an old adage that many of us learn even before we go to law school, right? Caveat emptor buyer beware, but um, four score and seven years ago, if you will, 1936, this court in Woolfolk essentially said when you're dealing with schools, it's seller beware. And, and why isn't that case uh, controlling to our outcome here today, as the amicus argues? Right, and, and respectfully as to the amicus, it's because we don't believe that the amicus position represents uh, the, the full breadth of what this contract was. We believe the contract is valid and enforceable, and therefore we believe it complied with law. We believe it's not an investment, so therefore it did not run afoul of any of the investment statutes. We don't believe it's a lease, so it did not run afoul of any of the leases. I mean, even statutes. early on, the Board of Accounts is saying to them, not just to them, but to every other school district, and they're saying, yeah, I, may, I may not do, you may not want to do this. And they did it anyway. Right. And respectfully, in the Board of Accounts uh, evidence that's before the court in the record, post-dates the execution of the contract and post-dates when the wind turbine had been constructed. So the, the deal had been struck, if you will. The contract had been written as these opinions came out. And if you read the preliminary opinions from the State Board of Accounts, they even make comments such as, these are such fact-specific projects that this is a case-by-case -case scenario that we will have to analyze. There's no broad rule saying that in no circumstance could a school ever have a money investor into a wind turbine urban project, it's just the way the deal is struck. And in fact, their opinions, and again, I realize we, we aren't going in the parole evidence route, but their opinions, I believe, uh, support where we are in the contract, which is the school has never owned the turbine, and it's the State Board of Accounts' uh, problem with the investment definition, as I understand it, is if the school doesn't own it, 
Um, that's one path. But if the school owns it, it's got to power its own facilities. So we can kind of set that aside because it has never owned it and it has never paid money towards uh, a return on investment. Th this SBOA second position, which was in their audit report, was it's a lease, uh, which we believe is inaccurate but is more correct because we believe it's actually a license, right? So the, the nature of the deal struck is the license agreement for the access. The benefit to the school corporation was its access to the turbine and the data for its educational opportunities, and we believe that's completely enforceable under the, uh, the statutory structure for what schools can do uh, in this situation. Mr. Kelly, I, I note that the State Board of Accounts, which has strong views on the legality of this contract um, isn't a party here. Neither the school sued uh, the, the State Board of Accounts and neither did you implede them. I'm, I'm curious wh why not. And, you know, it, and if you don't know, that's fine. But what's, what's the consequence of their absence here? That is, suppose we vindicate your view of the contract. State Board of Accounts says, well, we're, we're not a party to that judgment. We're, we're, not, we're not bound by that. Uh, why would you not want them subject to whatever the decision of our court is? Your Honor, I can't speak for Randolph Eastern School Corporation since they're the one that is subject to the audits that occur with the State Board. But, but you're certainly aggrieved by what the State Board of Accounts' view of that contract is. It's precisely because of their view that these folks want out. Now, there may be business reasons as well they want out, but at least the stated reason is, oh, gee, the State Board of Accounts says no. Your Honor, my, my impression is that there is not a ready administrative remedy for challenging an audit opinion from the State Board of Accounts as there might be in other state and agencies. Couldn't, couldn't you sue them as a, and seek declaratory relief against them? You've been sued for declaratory relief. Why not bring in the, the, the regulator slash auditor that says, well, their position is, and whatever the courts say about it, they, they need to be bound by the same judgment we are. Your Honor, respectfully, the reason why we did not do it was, was a strategic decision, if you will. You, you don't need to tell me you're strategic. I'm just wondering, what's the consequence, though, of there not being parties here? Uh, I think the consequence is this. Because the two major legal issues here is what does the contract say in terms of the four corners, and what does Indiana law, what does Indiana statute say in terms of investments and leases and other things, those are solely for the judiciary to decide. If this court decides the contract says this and it complies with Indiana law, and the Indiana statutes say this and the contract complies with those statutes, I believe the State Board of Accounts is bound by that decision because you have spoken for the court and on the law on those issues. And I believe that legally speaking, I don't see a path forward for the State Board of Accounts to take an alternate legal position um, that would counter what this court would decide on those legal issues. Mr. Kelly, in the time you have left, help me understand why uh, this is not a disputed issue of fact as to whether or not there's an investment. It occurs to me you've got contractual language that, that, that would indicate no. You've got the superintendent's emails and other uh, evidence that would seem to indicate yes. Why isn't that under our Hewley standard of dispute issue of fact? Your Honor, I, I would concede that certainly that could be one possibility, that there may be a question of fact as the investment. I think the answer lies into what is the definition of investment that gets applied. And at the trial court level, there was not an agreed upon definition of the term investment. Uh, the, court, the trial court declared that it was an investment and gave some factual reasons why, but did not give a definition and did not give a test. We advocated for Howie. The Court of Appeals applied the Merriam-Webster plain language definition of the term investment. Um, but there was no test applied by the trial court. There was just a declaration that it was an investment. I don't disagree with the notion that if this court were to adopt a, a formal test as to what an investment is under the public investment statutes, that that might potentially raise a question of fact for trial once that test needs to be applied at the trial court level. 
Council, I don't think either side cited. I'm just curious, are you familiar with Judge Magnus Stinson's decision in Highland versus City of Terre Haute? It's a case where the, the city sold, or the city paid someone to turn its sludge into biodiesel. I'm generally familiar with that case. Should we follow the approach of that case or Judge Magnus Stinson's analysis? My, rec my recollection of the facts of that case are that they were distinguishable from here as that I don't believe that there was any sort of financial obligation from Terre Haute in that situation or an exchange. I see my time is finished. If I could finish. Uh, I don't believe in that situation Terre Haute had a scenario where it was required to pay money for a value received, which I believe is present here in the form of the access fees. I believe that would distinguish that case from the one at present. Thank you. Thank Your you, Honors. Mr. Kelly. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal. Mr. Rampala. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, this case addresses the consequences of what Performance Services Incorporated's President Tom Thoman publicly described as a pioneering effort that would be a first of its kind in Indiana, which turned into a failed experiment. In 2009, PSI and Randolph Eastern School Corp District embarked on a joint venture together. The plan was to reap financial rewards and returns uh, for both parties through the sale of electrical energy and renewable energy credits on the open market and for PSI to receive federal tax incentives. It, what on the face of it seems to be a win-win scenario with PSI receiving funding to construct a turbine and the school corporation receiving an anticipated revenue stream to support its operations never came to fruition as either party envisioned. Uh, the wind turbine never really worked as expected, and the school corporation never received either the promised educational information necessary to be used as part of its school curriculum, and certainly never received the anticipated revenue streams. Today, as part of the fallout from that failed pioneering experiment, this court is presented with a question of whether or not the school corporation is obligated under the law to make payments related to the wind turbine. Uh, RESC would respectively submit that on this issue the law is clear. The State Board of Accounts concluded that regardless of the structure of the agreement, the arrangement between PSI and RESC ran afoul of the statutes governing the authority of the school corporation to enter into it, and the trial court in the dissenting opinion of the Court of Appeals agreed that the contract was an improper investment. Because the contract between itself and PSI constitutes uh, uh, one for an investment, and or a lease, there is no legal obligation on the part of RESC to make those payments because none of the legal requirements necessary for a political subdivision to enter into such an agreement were followed in this particular proceeding. The issue presented here respectfully involves two long-standing legal principles in Indiana law. First, that the school corporation, like RESC, as a political subdivision of the state of Indiana, is strictly limited to the authority which has been granted to it by virtue of statute through the Indiana General Assembly. And second, that those parties like PSI, who wish to enforce contracts with the government, are charged with ensuring that the public subdivision that they are contracting with has the authority to enter into the contract, including insurance that the that they adhere to the procedural and regal requirements to exercise the subdivision's authority. To Justice Massa's point, seller beware. Here, RESC did not have the authority to enter into the legal agreement with PSI and necessary to further the joint wind turbine investment. When did, when did the school conclude that it could not lawfully enter that contract? I, I'm sorry, Justice. When did the school conclude that it could not lawfully enter into the contract? I think it became abundantly clear to the school that it was exceeding its authority with the State Board of Accounts. 
uh, and issued its initial preliminary audit reports and then subsequent specific audit reports directed to the school uh, that the investment uh, or that the that the uh, particular agreement was both an investment and a lease under whatever what, what deference if any do we owe to that opinion you know, I, I believe that the State Board of Accounts, as the agency that is charged with enforcing uh, municipal subdivisions or political subdivisions, expenditures of money, is owed some level of deference to its interpretation of the contract as well as its interpretation of the, of the statute surrounding it. Uh, and I, I believe we described it as appropriate level of deference. Uh, does, your, does your legal position defend, uh, depend on our giving deference to that agency's opinion? I don't believe it does. I believe that a review of the four corners of the contract makes abundantly clear that this was an investment. Section 5 of the contract, in its very last paragraph, specifies unequivocally that any funds, any revenues that are received from the highly speculative sale of energy and renewable energy credits, those revenues would be, shall be, says the contract, remitted to the school corporation. Uh, so I'm trying to understand your position. You're saying it's a failed, you never paid anything. Schools could never pay anything. They didn't give, I mean, the school corporation signs this contract and says we have no risk, sorry, and it's a failed experiment, but we never paid any money. There's a how, there's, there's a test which may make it questionable whether it is an investment, but I never saw in your brief anywhere that you came up with a test that's other than that you say how we shouldn't apply but what is the test that we should be applying on a non-secured transaction investment? Well, Your Honor, in that particular question, I'd, at first I'd, I'd say I'm not 100% sure that you're correct when you say that there was no risk ever taken by the school corporation. The school corporation put itself on the line to pay the $154,000 per year. In addition, uh, under the terms of the contract, Section 2, it theoretically would have had to cover any of the losses over the first two years that i understand that risk i'm just saying they're saying it's a failed experiment when there was no um, skin in the game from the school they, they had this idea we're going to do this together union city ended up having to pay 1.3 million on a similar contract correct it, it did your honor uh, that's correct and, and to the to the extent that your question is asking about what is the appropriate standard i believe that in our uh, appellate brief uh, the school corporation used the Black's definitionary, uh, dictionary <laughs> definition of investment. And I, and I believe that that's substantially similar to the Meridian, uh, um, the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary uh, definition of investment, which is to a commitment of money with the expectation of a financial return. Council, I think, <clears throat> I think everybody knows what's going on here um, and that this, this truly was an investment that, that's uh, illegal. And, and you can tell that by just looking at the, the superintendent's uh, email describing how in the end we're going to come up with, we're going to make $3.1 million and all. But that's not really the dispute, is it? I mean, the, the question here is what does the contract say? Not what we believe um, is really going on. The question is what does the contract say? And, and, and why, is, why is your opposing counsel um, in error in, in arguing that um, that the contract is not valid and binding. What is it in that contract that proves to us that this is an illegal investment? Well, Your, Your Honor, I think that there are, are two answers to that question. And the first is, again, to refer to the last paragraph of Section 5, which clearly indicates that the expectation under the terms of the contract is that the school corporation would receive the revenues 
from the contract, that they shall be remitted to the school corporation. And I think to the extent that we're talking about a meeting of the minds between the contract, I think it's very important for the email that you're referring to in which the school corporation sets out what I believe has been referred to. But that's parole evidence, isn't it? It is, but I think it refers to and helps articulate the meeting of the minds here, because it's very important to understand that that, that email actually went directly to PSI and, and, and asked for their authority or asked for their sort of blessing. Is this an appropriate uh, summary of the agreement? And if there was no meeting of the minds that there would be recompense to the school, that there would be no, no return to them for the purposes of their investment, I'm hard, hard pressed to understand uh, how there would have been a contract that would have been entered in the, into the first place. If, if we vindicate um, PSI's version of the view of the contract and up uphold the Court of Appeals majority decision, does that give your folks the comfort it needs legally to pr be able to proceed with the contract, even though State Board of Accounts isn't a party here, that that uh, is going to insulate your folks from, from legal liability or, or, or other kind of sanction from the State Board of Accounts? Uh, certainly, I would expect that if the Indiana Supreme Court makes a decision, I would expect the State Board of Accounts is an executive branch agency of the, of, of, the, uh, of the state of Indiana to follow the direction of the court. There's, there's no question there. It's not a party to this judgment, but, but okay. But nevertheless, with a ruling that says it's blessed, I think that that would be the result. I would expect that to be the result under the uh, separation of power. Does that mean you then sleep well at night, or is there still no, a problem? not at all, actually. I believe, I believe honestly, sir, that, that with respect to the authority of the State Board of Accounts, it's not limited to simply whether or not this was an illegal investment or an illegal, or an illegal lease. The State Board of Accounts, within its authority, does have the right to pursue clawbacks for malfeasance, misfeasance. It does have authority that exists outside of whether or not this was simply a payment on a, on, a, on a legal lease or a legal investment. And I'm not sure what they would choose to pursue or not pursue. As you've indicated, they're not a party here. What I can say is that since at least 2011, and so far as I know through today, they have taken the position that payments under an agreement such as that between PSI and the school corporation are void and, and are, are illegal. So they could pursue the superintendent they, in their I, personal I believe, capacity? I believe that there is a potential that they may uh, make the election to pursue that by submitting it to the attorney general's office or the uh, local prosecutor as required. Which makes it all the more puzzling that they're not parties here. They're, they're spectators who have a great deal of interest in this case, but they're not litigants. They're just watching what's going on from the sidelines. Your Honor, I wish I could solve that particular well, for you. I'm, it's just an observation, not a question. Counsel, I want to make sure I'm understanding uh, your view of investment. And, you know, part of what gives me a lot of pause is this case doesn't just apply to schools, right? The investment restriction applies to other units of government, too. So it, is it your position that any contract that involves a return or revenue sharing is always going to be a prohibited investment? I, what I would respond to it by saying that the Indiana Public Investment Act is very clear as to what acceptable investments are under the under the state under, <clears throat> under state statute, and they're limited to the sorts of investments and in things like government-backed bonds that have a very low risk. A highly speculative uh, investment such as this, which it depends entirely on the value of, of wind energy and renewable energy credits, which are volatile. I believe falls far outside the category of risk that's there. As to whether or not it applies to every contract that might have a 
uh, a, a guaranteed savings or a guaranteed return. I'm not taking that position. I don't believe that, that we would expect this to extend there. I think this case stands on its own with respect to the unique nature of the agreement here, which was that PSI would, in fact, operate the, the wind turbine, but that the school would receive the revenues or some portion of the revenues associated with the sale on the open market of wind and what, what if instead of a wind turbine, um, the, the development was um, something like Grand Park across the street? Someone had the idea, we're going to have a lot of fields, basketball, baseball across, everything you can imagine. Uh, the school's going to put some money up front so that we can help build this. In exchange, the school's going to get to utilize all of the fields for 50 years. They'll never have to build another baseball, football field. They never have to maintain it. They'll get the complete benefit of that for all of their sports. And then uh, everybody will split the revenue 50-50 for all the travel teams that come through. So the school gets a big benefit, but there's speculation there too. Are there really going to be travel teams that come here? You know, what's the revenue going to be like? So how would we analyze that in terms of is that an investment or is this a contract where the two parties are exchanging, you know, some money to get access to sports fields? Sure. And I think the answer there, Your Honor, is, is it depends a little bit. It depends on how, how Grant Park was financed. I think it would depend on, on the steps that were taken with respect to what the contract actually looks like there. There is, I think, some, some in your example, some speculative nature in terms of would there be revenue from travel teams coming. But in general, the school is actually receiving, in that instance, tangible benefits. It's never going to have to build another field. It's never going to have to. And here there's the tangible benefit of the, the access agreement, right? The, the issue, though, is that the amount of money is so disproportionate. So what I, part of what I wrestle with is, are we always going to be in the business of figuring out, well, what was the, the benefit you got, you know, was that proportionate to the money you're paying? Is that what we have to do in each case? Well, I think in this particular instance, the, the level of access that was, was proposed to be granted is, is extremely minimal. And in fact, as the affidavits indicate within this motion for summary judgment in support of it, never really materialized. The proposed educational data that was supposed to flow through never flowed through in a manner in which was usable for part of the curriculum. That sounds like an argument that they breached the contract, not that the contract's illegal. I, I think in part that that's, that's part of it, but I believe also, Your Honor, it goes to the, the question of whether or not the access payments were in fact meant to, or I'm sorry, the payments under the, the contract were meant to provide access. We, we know from the, the evidence uh, from the official narrative that the $154,000 a year roughly matches the debt service payments that were tied to this particular, particular project. And so it, it seems very difficult to separate those two regardless of whether or not they're deemed access. Access which, you know, with all due respect, uh, was not revocable technically underneath. So it was not what? Was not revocable underneath the terms of the contract. It was only limited if there was going to be an interference with the uh, commercial operation of the, of the windmill, and even then it couldn't be withheld. But insofar as we know, there was never any physical access provided to the facility or allowed to the facility, in part because it simply never operated the way that it should have. Council, I don't know if your practice has ever involved um, landfills or not. You know, some municipalities around the state um, have revenue sharing agreements with landfills where, you know, what, however much trash is dumped there, you know, five cents a ton, 10 cents a ton, something like that uh, goes back to, to cities and towns and, and counties. Are, are those types of contracts 
uh, now subject to attack under, under, under your approach? Because again, you know, a landfill could close any time. They could send the trash to some other state. Um, there, there's a speculative nature there in terms of whether or not the revenue is really going to come through for a long period of time. So um, my practice does not involve uh, the, the relationship between municipalities and landfills. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll caution there, but I believe, Your Honor, no. The answer is I don't believe that that's speculative in the same way here. Trash is trash, and trash is going to come. And yes, I suppose there is some level of speculation as to whether or not the contracts for the dumping of trash will continue ad infinitum. But in this particular instance, the speculation really here is what is going to be the revenue that is shared. And that revenue comes from the, the wind energy contract and through the renewable energy contract or renewable energy credits, both of which operate on an open market scheme and both of which are highly volatile. Uh, unlike, say, for instance, a set fee per uh, dumping uh, a, a truckload of trash in a, in a landfill. Still sounds kind of factual, kind of iffy. I, I ask uh, opposing counsel about this is up before the trial court on cross motions for summary judgment. So, I mean, even if we were inclined, this is probably an investment. How can we determine why is it as a matter of law uh, an investment? Disputed facts here? There's no, there's no disputed facts here on the. I don't believe that there are disputed facts. I believe that's why the school corporation moved for summary judgment here. And I believe, believe Your Honor, if it, if it is an investment, it's one which far exceeds uh, the school uh, corporation's ability to move into it uh, or to, to have entered into it. And I believe that under longstanding Indian law, uh, that, that voids the contract and voids the obligation of the school corporation to make payments for the next roughly 10 years or so for uh, the, uh, uh, the contract as well as the, the preceding 10 years in which it's been in place. Again, I, I believe at the, at the end of the day, Your Honors, um, this is a case which really revolves around whether or not this was an illegal contract or an illegal investment. And I believe that even reading on the face of the, uh, the, the, the contract, you do see that it is an investment. There is unequivocally an expectation of return or a financial commitment in the form of payment uh, to, to PSI by the school corporation. And I believe that it does reflect the existence of a lease, uh, a contract in which it's not simply access being paid for, uh, but some form of consideration for, for uh, a long-term share of the ownership through the right of first refusal and through the uh, option to purchase the, con or to, to purchase the wind turbine. And under those circumstances, I believe we're looking at, as the State Board of Accounts rightly noted, either an investment or a lease. And in either case, the school corporation uh, did not have the authority to enter into it because the procedural niceties, I guess you could say, the procedural requirements is a much better word, were never followed. And PSI not only knew that, but had noticed that those weren't being followed. And under the circumstances, Indiana law has long held that uh, municipalities and school corporations should not be held to those those forms of financial commitment. I have a quick question on the lease. I mean, a key factor of whether an instrument conveys the lease or a license is exclusive possession, correct? I believe that's key correct. Okay. So how does the agreement afford the school corporation exclusive possession of the facility or its da data? Well, I believe that there, there's two ways. First, it does not grant. <laughs> 
uh, access to any other party other than the school corporation. And then I think also, Your Honor, through the, the operation of the right of first refusal and the operation to, uh, for the, to purchase. But access isn't possession, is it? Access itself isn't possession. I, I would agree with that, but I believe that the financial commitment here, that, uh, which also, uh, as part of the consideration for the contract, had to have included uh, the, the ROFR and the, uh, the, op uh, the option to purchase, uh, does suggest and, and does bring it you know, into the realm of a lease. The way that I would look at it uh, and the way that I've conceptualized it in my own mind uh, would be much like renting or leasing a vehicle in which someone has made a contractual commitment that they will make monthly payments to a vehicle. At the end of a specified term, they'll have an option uh, to purchase it at the remaining price. Just like here, after the first five years, the school corporation had the option to purchase with the understanding that they would do so at the remaining value of the, uh, of the Do you believe your investment argument is much stronger than your lease argument? Candidly, yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. Mr. Kelly, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. If I could pick up on opposing counsel's uh, comments there on the lease for a moment. The, the, the core issue here, if you look at the counterclaim and you look at the damages sought by PSI, is in relation to the biannual access fees. The, the core agreement of providing access through this license agreement and getting paid for that license agreement. We have no trouble saying that the contract is a license, not a lease. There's no covenants of quiet enjoyment. There's no property interest conferred upon the school. There's nothing that would arise to a leasehold interest that would give a property right in Randolph Eastern School. It is a license agreement. It is limited. It is limited in hours. It's limited to its non-interference with PSI's operations. We believe it's a license. One of the concerns uh, we have in terms of the trial court's voiding of this entire agreement is that it leaves some question as to whether license agreements such as this, if you take down just the core functions of the license and the biannual fee, whether if you void the entire contract, we are taking a, a, a position across school boards and across the state of Indiana saying, this type of license arrangement will not stand no matter what. Even if there is no revenue generation or any, any sort of prospect of revenue generation, that the license agreement itself is troubling and you school corporations can't enter into these agreements. I don't think that is what the State Board of Accounts and others have advocated. I do believe that is fully authorized under the powers of the school corporations, under the home rule statutes and under its powers. But that is a concern avoiding the entire agreement is to say, even the license agreement and the access and the agreement to pay for that access is void as a matter of law, which we do not believe it is. And if you look- Just, just so I'm clear, what, what, what are the implications of what you're saying? Is it that we should blue pencil the agreement in some respects, that this provision is unlawful, but the rest of it stands? I, I, I believe in a manner I'm saying that because if you look at the provisions that opposing counsel has cited in terms of the sharing of revenue, in practice those never came into play. There is no factual dispute about the fact that there was no money paid or payable by PSI to Randolph Eastern School Corporation. That never occurred in here. That's not ever going to occur. Uh, it, it's, so that piece of the contract has just never been performed. As the Court of Appeals said, this contract at, its, at the end of the day amounted to nothing more than the provision 
of services by PSI in the form of the access and the agreement by Randolph Eastern to pay the access fee, which if you look at the invoices that are the subject of PSI's claim, that's exactly what it's for. It is for the access fees. The taxpayer dollars at issue here were limited and capped to the biannual access fees. By calling this an investment, it suggests that the taxpayer money was at some risk to a risky investment in the market. It never was at risk. But doesn't that argument presuppose that the investment piece, the return to the school, is not a material term of the agreement? And isn't materiality a question of fact? That how do we decide that as a matter of law? Your Honor, that's a fair question because it, it goes to the, the core as to, I think, uh, Justice Moulter's question as to would Randolph Eastern have signed this contract without that piece. I can't speculate on that. I don't know the answer. But I don't think that was a material piece only because there was no guarantee or promise of payment. It was if there is revenue generated, here's how it's going to be paid. And it wasn't 100% to the school corporation. It was first to the maintenance and repairs and capital improvements of the, of the wind turbine. And then it was as a credit to access payments. And then it was to a capital reserve account. And then there was a generation of revenue. It would be uh, treated as a payment in lieu of taxes paid to the school corporation. In practice, again, it never got to the end of that waterfall provision in terms of the payment. I don't think it was material because there was no expectation set in the contract that there ever would be generation of revenue. It was a, if there is, and if it meets these criteria, this is how it would be paid. Was the argument that you're making now raised before uh, Judge Voorhees in the trial court? That is, if you find it's an illegal investment, salvage some of it anyway because? No, we, we did not argue a blue pencil approach. Uh, I, I would concede that. Um, and so that, that, that has not been something, and I'm not necessarily advocating that it be blue penciled. I ask because my impression from the briefing was that this is an up or down question. Either the thing's invalid, in which case it all goes away, or it, it survives and the whole thing the whole thing remains. And I, I think that is how the briefing is postured uh, at this point. My only argument to that would be, at its core, I believe that in practice, because we never got to the generation of any revenue and nothing was payable, that at the end of the day, the only real contractual obligations and the only obligations either side had was to provide access and to pay for the access, which is all we're asking for to be tried at the damages hearing at the trial court. So for those reasons, we ask for this case to be remanded uh, to the trial court with judgment in favor of PSI and set for a damages trial. I have a couple other questions. Yes, sir. To, to your knowledge, it was mentioned in, I think, the amicus brief, there are other cases on this issue pending around the state, correct? I see my time has run Just, out. If, I can if you know yes or no, or I don't know. The only case I am aware of other than this one is the lawsuit with Union City, which was part of the record and also involved PSI. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Well, counsel, we really appreciate the quality of the argument, the quality of the briefing today. Um, very interesting. We will be issuing, um, just discussing the case and issuing an opinion in due course. Thank you very much. All right.